Welcome to the Husband Material Podcast, where we help Christian men outgrow porn. Why? So you can change your brain, heal your heart, and save your relationship. My name is Drew Boa, and I'm here to show you how. Let's go. Today we're talking about spiritual warfare. Some of you might be thinking to yourself, wait a second, I thought Drew didn't approve of the military mindset and that we're not supposed to fight against our sexuality. Listen, we are in a war. Not against our sexuality, which is good. We are in a war against evil, which is not too sexual. It's anti-sexual. Porn is not too sexual. It's not sexual enough. True, holy, godly sexuality is good. And what I want to do tonight is talk about where we should focus our energy when it comes to resistance, when it comes to fighting, because there is a battle to be won. And it's a battle for the sake of our sexuality against evil. And all day, I've been feeling a certain amount of heaviness when I was preparing for this, feeling a a weight on my chest, feeling kind of an oppressive energy. And I'm not surprised because whenever we take a stand with the kingdom of God against the kingdom of darkness, we can expect opposition. And I want to avoid two errors tonight. One error would be pretending like spiritual warfare doesn't matter. Demons are not real. Satan is a myth. The other error would be to say everything bad in my life has to do with spiritual warfare. Not the case. There are two guiding principles that will help us frame tonight's conversation. Principle number one, spiritual warfare is real. And Principle number two, spiritual abuse is also very common. Spiritual abuse can involve telling somebody that they have a demon or assuming that something within me is evil when it's really not. There are so many things that go into our sexuality and that go into our struggle with pornography, including our brains, our bodies, our biology including our psychology and our family of origin and our development, our formation and deformation, and including spirituality, including our relationship with God and our relationship with evil. So tonight, we will begin to talk about how to relate to evil and how not to relate to evil. Did you know that you have a relationship with evil and that it is the most threatening relationship in your life, threatening all the other relationships. And that is why tonight I'm giving you seven strategies for spiritual warfare, all based on my very favorite passage of the Bible, Matthew chapter four, the temptation of Jesus. This is going to be a Bible study. Some of you are going to be very happy about that and excited about that. So if that's you, Get out your Bible, just like in church, and let's open it up. Open it up with me to Matthew chapter 4. We don't usually do this on the podcast. Tonight we're doing it. This will be a very interactive episode. 
I will be asking you questions after each of the strategies that I share. I want to hear what you have to say and what you think. So please respond in the chat, respond in the comments, and I want to hear your voice and what you think about this stuff. Matthew chapter four, we will be camping out there because I believe this passage has so, so, so much to teach us. Now, on the one hand, I understand that this part of the Bible is not meant to be a manual. It's not meant to be a training lab for how to fight Satan. Primarily, it's telling us that Jesus has fought against Satan and he has defeated him. And in the temptation of Jesus, it wouldn't be the last time that he came up against the oppressive forces of darkness and won. But it was the first and most important time that we see it happen in the Gospels. And and so the primary message of this passage is that Jesus is victorious. And within that, I think we have a lot to learn. We have a lot to learn from Jesus. Have you ever wondered, how did we get this story? The temptation of Jesus, a one-on-one conversation between the Son of God and the Prince of Darkness. Like, where did that come from? Surely at some point, Jesus must have told his disciples this story. And I'm sure that they must have been taking notes. Jesus sent them out with his authority to cast out demons and to oppose the kingdom of evil wherever they went. And so if I'm a disciple listening to Jesus talk about this situation where where he overcame Satan and, and he defeated all of the lies that were thrown at him to tempt him and to accuse him, man, I'm going to be taking notes. So I hope you take notes tonight. Get out your Bible, get out your pen, get out your highlighter, and let's do a Bible study tonight. We don't usually do that on the podcast, and I'm kind of excited to do it right now. Seven strategies for spiritual warfare. Let's open up the word. All right, let's get into the text. Matthew chapter four. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I'm going to pause there and just notice there's a battle line drawn here with Jesus and the Holy Spirit leading him on one side and the devil on the other side, which can also be translated the accuser. And this battle is not just unique to Jesus. It's for us too. We are in this battle. So strategy number one is wake up to the war. There is an enemy. There is an accuser. And as 1 Peter 5, 8 says, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Are you aware of that? Sometimes we forget. If I wasn't aware of spiritual warfare, I would have been scratching my head wondering, why do I feel so discouraged today? Why do I feel so heavy? Why do I lack motivation? Hmm. One of the contributors, surely, is the fact that I am taking a stand against the kingdom of darkness today. I need to wake up to the war and you need to wake up to the war that we are in a battle. So here is what I want to say about this devil, about this accuser. He can really only do one thing, lie. (laughs) 
he's a liar. Jesus calls him the father of lies. He can lie to us. I want to quote Neil T. Anderson. This is from this is from my book, Redeem Sexuality. He says, the major strategy of Satan is to distort the character of God and the truth of who we are. He can't change God and he can't do anything to change our identity and position in Christ. If, however, he can get us to believe a lie, we will live as though our identity in Christ is not true. I want to repeat that last line. If he can get us to believe a lie, we will live as though our identity in Christ is not true. So he's really powerless. As the book of 1 John says, we are born of God and the evil one cannot touch us. Every sin that has been done to us and that we have done has already been dealt with. It's already been judged. Satan can't judge us. All he can do is accuse us and lie to us and persuade us to believe that lie, to live as if it's not true. And that is why he's called the accuser. We will get more into what are these accusations? What are these lies? Before we do, I want to know from you, what does the voice of evil say to you? Surely you're familiar with this accusing voice, maybe the inner critic. What does the voice of evil say to you? And I want to distinguish this from your own voice, from things that go through your mind that you think or desires that you have. Maybe this voice feels like it's coming from the outside. What words, what thoughts does evil put into your mind? All right, I'm going to read some of these lies. The voice of evil tells me that I'm not worthy, not acceptable, that I don't belong. I don't measure up. People are against me. Dirty, worthless, ugly. You are nothing. You're not going to recover from your sexual brokenness. You are less than. You are worthless. You are not good enough. See that one a few times. You are powerless. You'll never overcome this. Just do it. It will make you feel better, even though God says don't do it. Don't tell the truth about your secrets. It will only hurt others. You have no hope. Suicide is the only way to escape the suffering. Mm. This is the voice of temptation. This is the voice of accusation. And I want you to notice something. There is a specific tone to this voice. There are words. You have no hope. There are also nonverbal qualities to this voice of temptation, to these messages from evil. So I also would like to hear, what does this voice of evil sound like? It's a bit of a deeper question, isn't it? (laughs) That one's harder to answer, but you know, you know what evil sounds like. What does the voice of evil sound like? Makes you feel down and weary, mocking, taunting, speaking with authority. Sounds like the men that rejected me. Mm. Evil sounds accusatory. It's demeaning. 
Sounds like a self-righteous whisper. Sounds like a naysayer. The voice of evil. Sounds like it understands and shares my struggles. It's seductive. So well said. There is a specific vocal tone to evil. And this is something that I learned at a spiritual warfare workshop that I attended with Adam Young. He said that the voice of God and the voice of evil could be saying the very same words. For example, you're broken, but with a very different vocal tone. And that's one of the ways you can distinguish. So for example, you're broken versus you're broken. Do you hear the difference? The voice of accusation has a tone of contempt and condemnation. It's the same old script playing over and over, reinforcing despair, pushing you down under the weight of it to feel worse about yourself. That is the voice of the accuser. And temptation and accusation are just two sides of the same coin. It's the same voice. And one of the things I talk about in in my book, Redeem Sexuality, is that this is one of the ways we can expose those things as lies. When the voice of temptation comes before you act out saying, oh, it's no big deal. It doesn't matter. What you do is whatever. Then that same voice afterwards says, you've screwed it up. You've ruined everything. Who do you think you are? Are you even a Christian? Different messages, but there's that same tone of leading you astray, of tearing you down, of pushing you down, of contempt. This is the enemy we are dealing with. This is who and what we are up against, my friends. That's the voice of evil, prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour, ultimately already defeated. And just flailing and grasping for whatever he can get on his way to destruction. So my first strategy for spiritual warfare is to wake up to the war. Become aware of this voice in your head. Become aware of these invisible forces that we can't really pinpoint. But you know what? We don't need to. We can just be aware that they are out there and that they hate what God is doing to us and through us as he leads us on this journey to freedom. And the more you pursue the kingdom of God, the more the kingdom of darkness will come after you. (laughs) If I've learned anything in this ministry, it is that the biggest, most important actions I have taken toward God, toward healing, towards helping other men heal, have always been accompanied by warfare, by opposition. And there is a war. It's a war for the sake of our sexuality. So we're just in the first verse of Matthew 4. Let's keep going because there's more that I want to say. So after you've woken up to the war, point two is know the voice of God. It says Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, I'm going to pause there. 
He says, if you are the son of God, what is he doing? He's questioning his identity. And if you look just before the beginning of this chapter, what happened at the end of Matthew chapter 3? It says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Guys, that is the voice of God. (laughs) And the major strategy of Satan is to question that voice. The voice of the Father who loves you, who is delighted in you. (sighs) That's what the tempter is trying to do. It's the same old strategy every time. If he can persuade us that we are something other than the very delight of the Father who loves us, then he's already won at that point. The strategy of Satan is to question the voice of God. That was his strategy from the beginning. That's his strategy now. So what do we do? We need to hear the voice of God until we can know it, until we can pinpoint it. And that's why I always end each episode saying, you are God's beloved son. In you, he is well pleased because Jesus says, as the father has loved me, so have I loved you. The same love that the father has for the son is given to us. Just let that sink in. How much does God love Jesus? That is how much he loves you. It's amazing. The gospel tells us that whatever belongs to Christ belongs to us now. And whatever belongs to us belongs to Christ now. All of his righteousness, all of his beauty, all of his glory, that's ours. That's who we are, actually. Our identity is Christ. It's the name on the back of our jerseys. It's the heart beating within our chest. It's the image of God with which we were created and being recreated. And everything which belongs to us, our weakness, our sin, our flaws, even our pornography addiction, all of our sin, all of our wounds, that belongs to Jesus now. 
He has taken responsibility for those things. He has dealt with them decisively. Because he loves us. Because he loves us, because he loves us, because he loves us. Do you know this voice of God? Here's what Adam Young said about it. The voice of God has a vocal tone of fierce kindness and warmth. It brings us into the surprise of God's embrace and welcome, even while convicting us of sin, even while pointing out something that needs to change. It has that tone of kindness and warmth. It leads into grief and conviction of sin, but ultimately into life. As another part of the New Testament puts it, there is a kind of sorrow that leads to repentance. The voice of God, the voice of love that says, you are God's beloved son and you he is well pleased can also tell you. And here's one area where I see you not living in alignment with that. That's not who you are. The way you answered your spouse the other day, the way you treated that friend, the way you avoided that conflict, the way that you chose to handle that situation in an immature way, that's not who you are. Recently, I watched the movie Hook, and there's a lot of problems with that movie. It's about Peter Pan, who has grown up into an adult, and then he has to go back to Neverland to... Uh, save his children who have been taken captive by Captain Hook. And he has to become Peter Pan again. He has to become a boy again, really. And here's my favorite part of the movie. There's a part when one of the lost boys takes Peter's face. And he says, there you are, Peter. He says, there you are. That's what God does. He looks at you. And he sees underneath all of the crap. And he holds you with kindness and tenderness and compassion and says, there you are. There you are, Victor. There you are, Kevin. There you are, James. There you are, Marcus. That's what I always look for in a coaching call, in a session with somebody. I'm trying to find you, the real you, and say, there you are. Even in the middle of your sin, even in the middle of your shame. And that's the gift that that I've received. That's the gift of our identity. It's not like a sticker truth that gets slapped on. It's, it's something very unique to each of us, the way that we are able to represent that image of God. The uniqueness to each of us, that identity that God gives us, it, it's so irreplaceable. And I believe it's our greatest asset in spiritual warfare, to know who you are, what the voice of God says about you. So now it's your turn. Tell me. What does the voice of God say to you? The Father's voice, the voice of blessing, the voice that says, there you are.
There's another part in that movie hook when Peter Pan figures it out. He says, you're doing it, Peter. You're doing it. And I want to say that to each one of you guys, when you take a step towards freedom, towards brotherhood, towards the life you were created for, you're doing it. You're doing it. There you are. All right. So what does the voice of God say to you? God's voice is like a soft breeze. It refreshes my soul. It says that everything will be okay. I love that. I love the embrace in those words. And you're really talking about what the voice of God sounds like, right? Not just what it says, what it sounds like to you. Come to me and I will give you rest. I will never leave you. Follow me. You can do it. Be still and be with me. You have what it takes. God says he loves me and will never abandon me. You are loved. You are wanted. You are good enough. One more step. Oh, I like that one. One more step right here, right now. That's the only thing God ever asked us to do is right here, right now, one step at a time. What else does the voice of God say? You are loved, accepted, cherished, redeemed, my son. You have nothing to prove. Oof, that's a good one. That's a good one. You have nothing to prove. I see you and I hear you. I am with you. Choose this day whom you will serve. It sounds clear. Gives me many opportunities to be obedient. God's voice is not cynical. God's voice is not passive aggressive. It's strong, confident, and loving at the same time. It's quiet. So good. It's that gentle whisper. The voice of God does not shout at you or yell at you. Hmm. Jesus welcomes sinners. He is the friend of sinners. If you're coming to him, as a sinner, then the the harsh and angry outburst that he reserved for the self-righteous, it's not for you. The voice of God sounds compassionate and says, I am capable, that I am a son of the king. He tells me my sin cannot outdo his grace, mercy, and passion for me. Amen. You know this voice. And sometimes it feels so quiet in comparison to those other voices. Sometimes you you know that the face of God is there for you intellectually, but it's like there's a cloud and you just can't see it. So here's one of the ways we need to hear the voice of God. Yes, we need to hear it in the Bible, in the word. And also we need to hear it from each other. We need to give this gift to each other, and we are able to because the Spirit of God lives in us. We can bless one another. We can give one another this gift of hearing his voice. You can hear it in the words of Scripture, and you can hear it from your brothers in Christ. I hear it also from my wife. I hear it from mentors. I hear it from the people who I trust. Isn't it amazing how other people in your life speak to you so much more tenderly than you speak to yourself? So much more grace and compassion for us than we have for ourselves. We need to receive the voice of God. It's like Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. Do you know his voice? 
Here's the other question. What does that voice sound like? I've asked you what that voice says. What do you notice about the quality of the voice of God? Soft and loving. Soft, still, piercing. Loving, compassionate, accepting, comforting. Yes, even while confronting us, this voice comforts us. The father of all compassions. Mm. It's so great. (laughs) I love the similarity in all of your responses, saying loving, loving, compassionate, compassionate, love, authority, acceptance. This voice is so unique. There's no other voice like it. And anything else that's different from that, it's not God. If there's confusion, if there's maybe a mild tolerance of you, um, if there's contempt for you, relentless criticism, this is not God. This is not Jesus. Remember the words of Jesus to the woman caught in adultery. He said, woman, where are your accusers? Where are they? The voice of accusation? It's gone. Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. We usually flip that and think, if I go and sin no more, then he won't condemn me. No, he says, I don't condemn you. I love you. Know the voice of God. Hear the voice of God. Ingest the words of God. This is actually strategy for spiritual warfare number three, as we're only at verse two. Why it's my favorite chapter of the Bible. And in fact, there are all kinds of things that we're just not going to talk about tonight that are interesting in this passage. I'm just going to focus on the strategies that I've learned about spiritual warfare. Let's keep going. Matthew chapter 4. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Here's strategy for spiritual warfare number three. Speak the words of God. Speak them out loud. Declare them. Jesus was able to do this from memory. And I have found memorizing the word of God to be incomparable in its power. This was Jesus' strategy. He could have made up something brilliant to say to Satan. Instead, he chose to rest his authority on the word of God in scripture. He chose to quote scripture. So if I'm going to try to fight against the voice of temptation with my own words, who am I to do that? Why not take the strategy of Jesus? The words of scripture. The Bible says that scripture is the sword of the spirit, sharper than a double-edged sword. In the whole list of the armor of God, the word is the only offensive weapon, maybe besides prayer, that is mentioned. And that's the one. That's the one that, that I recommend. If you're in a situation where it feels like there's spiritual warfare, 
The Bible is your friend. And not only that, um, I think there's a lot of value in knowing it by heart. Isn't that a wonderful little phrase? To know it by heart. When you memorize it and you know it by heart, you know it in your heart. Strategy number three is to speak the words of God. When you have the words of God combined with the voice and the vocal tone of the Father, ooh, that's such a powerful combination. And I have a few different verses memorized, and I am going to share with you my favorite one that I developed with my ally Pete in 2015. It is Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. The armor of God, what a perfect passage for spiritual warfare, and our strategy for memorization was to sing it. We created a song for these verses, and I'm going to share that song with you right now. Are you ready for my spiritual warfare song? (laughs) This is a song that I've repeated to myself over and over again, and I know it by heart, not just up here. I know it in here because over time, these words sink in. And when I'm able to recite it, I'm copying Jesus. I'm imitating his strategy that we see in Matthew chapter 4. So here's my spiritual warfare song. (laughs) My gosh, I've been weeping on this call. Now we're laughing. I'm going to sing a song. (laughs) What is happening? All right, hold on, hold on. I just got to get the courage to sing. Woo! I've rapped on the podcast before, but I haven't sung until now. All right, here we go. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17, English Standard Version. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And put on the whole armor of God with which you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet. Having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. (laughs) Welcome to a much more enjoyable and effective form of memorizing the word of God. That's what it is for me. You can figure out your own way to do it, whether you like watercoloring the word of God or making up a song like me or writing it as a rap. Um, Find a way 
to know it by heart. And then you can use it as ammunition against the evil one so that the voice of God can be louder than all the other voices. That's strategy number three. Speak the words of God. My question for you is this. What's one of the verses you recite when you feel like you're in the middle of a battle, spiritually, sexually? What's one of your favorite verses? One of those powerful ones. One of those verses you have depended on. It's given you strength. It's given you courage. Psalm 119, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be with grace. Psalm 23, Jeremiah 29, 11, Deuteronomy 31, 1 Corinthians 6, 11. This is in that passage on sexual immorality. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. One of my favorites from that is when he says, you are not your own, you were bought with a price, therefore honor God with your body. Love that, 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Psalm 139. Hmm. Where can I go from your spirit? So many good verses here. One of my favorites, James 5, 16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. So many good verses. Ooh, I see that Jay has 1 Corinthians 6, 11 tattooed on his arm. Awesome. What a great way to know it by heart. To know it in your body. So good. There's one passage that I wanted to share. I haven't memorized it, but it's a really good one. This is 1 Thessalonians 4, starting verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. There are so many great verses. Find yours, choose yours, know it by heart so you can retrieve it and use it when you need it. I can't wait to hear someone else's scripture song. It's going to be awesome when I get to see some of those that you guys create. Let's back up a little bit. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Here's an important piece that I see in this. 
Jesus is hungry. He has very real needs. And Satan tells him, make these stones become bread. Meet your need. And Jesus has a way of both validating that need while also delaying gratification. Validating the true need, both the physical hunger and the spiritual hunger. I love that. So here's strategy number four. Validate your true needs, not the surface level need for immediate gratification, but the deeper need. Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone. Yes, we live on food. We need food to live. But even more than that, we need every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's a both and perspective. And especially when we're talking about sexuality, there is a hunger. There is a desire. There is a need embedded within our sexuality. And it's not for sex. It's much deeper than that. So a lot of times when I've used this passage in my own situations of temptation, I will fill in that blank with a different word. Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone. For me, it's man does not live by sex alone. Man does not live by porn alone. Man does not live by masturbation alone. Man does not live by moral performance alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, by the voice that says, you are my beloved son. And you, I'm overjoyed. (laughs) Not in what you've done or what's been done to you, but in who you are. I am overjoyed. That voice, these words of, of the Lord, that's what we need. And we also have physical needs and we also have a sexuality, which is good. And these desires, which really need to be validated. So I love the way that Jesus validates his physical needs, his very real bodily urges without giving into them. So my question for you is, what are your true needs, your deeper needs? And the enemy is dangling a version of it in front of you. Every time you reach out for it, it actually becomes further and further away from your grasp. Because by pursuing porn, you're actually making it less possible to get that very real thing that you need in real life. What do you really need? I need to be held, even by the words of God, to be pursued, to belong, to be accepted, to be loved, accepted and heard, to be included and wanted, to be loved to belong, to be known, to be affirmed, to have value, to be pursued, to be fully accepted. Porn gives us the opposite of these things. While promising the world, we do have legitimate needs. These needs are legitimate and they need to be met in a legitimate way with God under his guidance. I love the wisdom of the words of Jesus. 
Man shall not live on fill in the blank alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Any idol in our lives, career, family, relationships, anything can be put into that sentence. Man shall not live on that alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Here are some other needs people are talking about. A deep emotional and spiritual connection to be spoken to. That one is deep for me. For the inner child who was all alone, no one was speaking to him. To have a father who guides me. To have approval. And do you see how the father's voice provides these things? It's just amazing. So that's strategy number four, validate your true needs. Let's keep going in this passage. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. Pause. Did you see how he began that second temptation again? If you are the son of God, questioning his identity again, questioning the voice of the father. Throw yourself down. You ever felt that impulse to throw it all away? To give up? Yeah, God will forgive me. So why not just destroy myself, sabotage myself? And then look what happens next. The accuser. The devil quotes scripture. He says, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Once again, we come back to this principle of the vocal tone. This is not the tone of kindness. This is not the tone that lifts you up and strengthens you. This is the voice that tears you down. And yes, it can be sweet and seductive and also evil. Quoting the words of God is not the same as speaking with the voice of God. So I want to note that it makes it even more important to know God's voice when scripture is misused. Apparently, even the demons know the Bible really well. So, how does Jesus answer him? Once again, with scripture, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So good. Let's keep going. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Strategy number five that I see here comes from the fact that all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor already belong to Jesus. They're already his. He, he is going to win them when he takes the throne. After he dies and rises again from the dead, he will ascend to the right hand of God. And 
That's where he is now. And he's putting his enemies under his feet. And eventually the whole world will be full of the glory of God. And there will be no need for a sun or a moon because he will be the light. All of it is his. He's the king. He's the Lord. And so what is Satan giving him that he doesn't already have? He's giving it to him. Seeming to give it to him. Now. Right now. Without the suffering. Without the death. Without the in-between. So what's our strategy here? I think there's something to learn here about delayed gratification. Because so much of what we want, of what we deeply desire, is truly ours. <laughs> and, and you know that experience that maybe you've never had of being loved and accepted? It's not just something that has to be saved for heaven. You can have it here in this life. It's going to come on the other side of risk and suffering, and difficulty, and perseverance. It's going to come in this journey. And sometimes there's a lot of in-between time. So embrace the in-between. Don't skip the suffering. As we talked about on our virtual retreat, learn to sit with discomfort. Delay gratification. Let me share a couple of verses about this. In Luke 12, 32, we have such a beautiful picture of the Father's heart and of his generosity towards us and everything that we have as Christians. He says, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. What? That kingdom that Satan was promising to Jesus, which was already his, is given to us? Once again, everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to us. Listen to this voice. Fear not, little flock. It's reassuring. It's gentle. It's tender. Little flock. It's like, oh, my cute little church. Little flock. Men of God, husband material men. Hear that, hear that voice of God. It says, fear not, little flock. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He doesn't say, I'm going to give you a place in the kingdom. He doesn't say, I'm just going to give you uh, the keys to the car, so to speak. He's like, I'm going to give you the car. I'm going to give you the whole car. It's yours. The kingdom. There is nothing. There is no pleasure. There is no power. There is nothing you can desire which is ultimately excluded from what is waiting for us? No eye can see, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love him. And look what it says in that verse, uh, Luke 12, 32. It's your, father, it's your father's good pleasure to give you these things, right? He's delighted. So can we delay gratification? Can we embrace discomfort? Here's my question for you. What are you waiting for that hasn't happened yet? What are you hoping for that hasn't come yet? What are you dreaming about that seems so far away? In what area of your life are you learning delayed gratification? Could be in dating. Could be waiting for a child. It could be that job. Could be getting out of your job. 
In what area of life are you waiting? Where are you in that in-between stage? You could think about it this way. If the devil was going to take you somewhere and show you everything that he knows you long for and promise it to you, what would that be? What would he tempt you with, tantalize you with? Hey, you can come have this without the risk and the pain and the waiting. What would it be? Employment. A marriage that's mutually satisfying. To be free from porn. That one is interesting to me. Think about it. What if the enemy promised you freedom from porn if you worshipped him? Would you do it? If you could be free from porn for a whole year and not grow closer to Jesus in that whole year, would it be worth it? Interesting to consider our priorities What else are you waiting for? Brotherhood. Dating a woman who's interested in me. Someone I can love Christ with without the fear of perverting that love. Having a family, a good family, having friendship, intimacy, and openness, right? Those things that we desire. The enemy wants us to try to get it now any way we can rather than worshiping God. So here's what Jesus does. Strategy number six. He worships as a weapon. There are some pretty cool songs lately that talk about using worship as a weapon. He says, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Or as James 4.8 says, Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Jesus actually speaks directly to evil. This is interesting. It's different than a prayer in the sense that he's talking to the enemy saying, hey, get away from me. Get out of here. He's rebuking him. And he gives us the authority to do the same thing. And what does he replace it with? Worship. So I want to know. One question. How do you worship God? How do you enjoy God? What does it look like for you to delight in what he's made? For me, it's running on the beach, swimming in the ocean, climbing a mountain. For my birthday, I got to play hide and seek, which was really fun. Haven't done that in a long time. Reading is a way that I worship God. Going out for a meal with a friend is a way that I worship God. How do you worship God? What makes you feel close to God? What makes you feel filled up? Taking pictures of his creation, playing the guitar, singing, serving, prayer, music, being in nature or by a body of water, Seeking knowledge, spending quality time with others, gardening, digging in the dirt, going for walks and enjoying a blue sky that shows his beauty and creation, running and being outdoors. When I am feeling the weight of spiritual warfare, it's not an either or choice of doing something that I love or 
trying really, really hard to be with God. No, let's worship him in the ways that are unique to us and how he's made us to our identity. Remember, there you are. There you are. You know, when you're at your best, when you're most yourself, it's when you're worshiping. When, in whatever unique way that looks for you. And part of that means pouring out to others. I see someone saying, I worship when I'm encouraging others. When I see courage in my brothers. Doing ministry at a karaoke lounge. That's awesome. Being with close friends. When we do this, we are safe in the center of God's will. When we worship the creator rather than the creation. Last verse that I'm going to talk about here. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. That's what it says in Matthew. That's how the temptation of Jesus ends in Matthew. It says the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Isn't that wonderful? They took care of his needs. His valid, legitimate needs. They took care of him. He was able to embrace the in-between, get through the delayed gratification, worship God, and look, God provided. Amazing. There's something else I want to say because the temptation of Jesus also occurs in the book of Luke. And at the end of the account in Luke, this is what it says. When the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Until an opportune time. This is a critical insight And it's a strategy for spiritual warfare. And this is the last one. Strategy number seven is expect retaliation. The devil left him until an opportune time. He's strategic. If you're in a really good place, mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, socially, vocationally, the enemy's going to wait. Bide his time. He's not in a rush. He's going to wait until the perfect moment, the circumstance where you're most susceptible. And that's when he's going to strike. This is a huge insight. You need to hear this. It is not when you're doing really well that the enemy is going to pounce. When the prowling liars, the prowling liar, (laughs) your enemy is a prowling liar and a prowling lion looking for someone to devour. It's when you get to the point when you think, oh, I'm doing so well, and therefore, I don't need to continue my momentum in recovery or healing. Maybe I can plateau for a while. Maybe I'm fine. Maybe porn really is in the past, and I can just drift rather than continuing in this direction that God's been leading me on. When we believe we are least susceptible is when we are most susceptible. That is the opportune time. When there's a perfect storm of circumstances that hits and it feels like everything in life is going wrong. That's when the spiritual forces of darkness are going to show up. So I guess my final question for you is, what is the opportune time for evil to attack you. Maybe it's when you're isolated. Maybe it's when you're stressed. 
Maybe it's when you're scared. When you're sad. Maybe it's when you're bored. When I'm alone, prideful. When I have money to spend. When I'm tired, stressed, bored. When I'm fighting with my wife. When I feel I have arrived. When I'm worried and unable to engage in fun. After a time of harmony or victory. When I'm feeling purposeless. Wake up to the war, my friends. That's the opportune time. So expect retaliation. And when you make progress and you experience victory and healing and growth and you step in out to overflow to others, you become a target. And evil is just going to wait until that opportune time. And here's one last insight. Do you ever wonder what that opportune time was for the enemy to strike back? It says the devil left him until an opportune time. This is my best guess at what that opportune time was. It was the night that Jesus was betrayed. When he stayed up all night praying. And he knew he was called to go to the cross. And he didn't want to go. And he said, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. I don't want to do this. It said he was sweating drops of blood. The spiritual warfare is just unimaginable to me. Unimaginable to me of what he must have been going through. It was the opportune time. And because he was victorious, because he died for us, because he was buried for us and raised from the dead for us, now we are in a position of victory, my friends. The fight is over. The battle is over. The battle is the Lord's. And just like the people of the Exodus who crossed through the Red Sea, just like them, we can now say, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. And we can just rest in his victory. We can claim his victory because it's ours now. Whatever belongs to Jesus belongs to us. The war has already been won decisively. And now we are enacting that victory and claiming it in every area of our lives until he returns. So my friends, from this position of victory, what will we do? I've suggested seven things. Wake up to the war. Know the voice of God. Memorize the words of God and speak the words of God. Validate your true needs and delay gratification. Worship as a weapon and expect retaliation. Seven strategies for spiritual warfare. Wow, what a journey. From weeping to laughing to singing to recentering. Spiritual warfare is not everything. It is an important and essential part of this journey to freedom. And if we are neglecting it, then it's the opportune time. If, on the other hand, we are actively, collectively 
receiving our identity from the voice of the Father, which oftentimes has to come through the voice of one another, then we're going to continue to experience an ever-deepening sense of his kindness, of the victory and the power, the resurrection power that belongs to us because we are in Christ. Gentlemen, the enemy can tempt us, but he cannot tempt Christ in us. God is your father. Jesus Christ is the older brother you never had and your very best friend and the Holy Spirit lives in you. You have everything you need. Always remember, you are God's beloved son. And in you, he's well-placed. Well